the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. It's 4 o'clock. That means I'm where I'm supposed to be. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your questions, Bible questions, questions about something going on in your life. Whatever's on your heart, you need only to pick up the phone and dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. At 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. And we've had a flurry of questions come in, so we'll get to those in a moment. You can also use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app and send your questions in that way. And if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, I'll get to the questions that we've got sent in in just a moment. Two quick things. One, tonight I'm going to be teaching out of the book of Leviticus. That's at 7 o'clock. Uh, if interested, you can watch it at calvarysa.com uh, or Come visit us if you're in the San Antonio area. We have uh, um, a lot of room on Wednesday nights, no problem. Uh, and then tomorrow, uh, Paula will be live in studio with me on the date day edition of the program. And uh, we'll see what's on Paula's heart to talk about. But as always, it will be entertaining. It will be fun. And she will probably cry within the first oh, eight or nine minutes. That's the over-under on Paula crying tomorrow is eight or nine minutes. Let's get to some questions while we await your phone calls. Um, This is from Jill from our email inbox. Uh, Pastor Ron, I was reading Ephesians 4.9. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth? Uh, I believe, and this is that she was quoting now she's asking, I believe descended means that uh, he went down into the earth, into Hades. Hades held the abyss. Are they one and the same? Could you explain their roles? Yeah, Jill, uh, I can. Um, uh, remember, the, the eternal hell has not yet been created. Uh, that'll be the lake of fire. That, that that will be the ultimate destination for everybody who's ever rejected Jesus Christ. Now, what's referred to as Hades or the abyss uh, in the center of the earth somewhere, it's a place of torment. It's referred to in the story Jesus told in uh, Luke chapter 16 is a place of eternal torment. And that's the place that Jesus would have descended into the lower parts of the earth. Now, let me explain a little bit because this, at least to me, uh, Jill, is really interesting. I'll go to Philippians or to uh, Ephesians, I'm sorry. Um, you know, this this passage is butchered by a lot of people. Uh, it is uh, 
horribly taught in, in, in prosperity churches, faith churches, that when Jesus was crucified, he went to hell to be tormented by Satan only to emerge as the firstborn again Christian. That is absolutely untrue. In fact, it's blasphemy. The verse doesn't say that at all. Uh, one of the things we need to remember is that Satan and his demons have never been in hell. Um, they they will be eventually in the lake of fire, but that's not the case even now. We also know that Peter refers to, to this same place in 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, verses 18 and 19. And Peter teaches that Jesus did, in fact, descend into what we call hell or the abyss, Abraham's uh, bosom in the place of torment, and preached a message of judgment. Now, it's not a message of conversion. It wasn't Jesus giving them a second chance. What he was doing was declaring victory. Um, and, and in that process, he led the captives free. He took them into his captivity and led them to heaven. So what he did when he descended into the lower parts of the earth was he took all of those in the uh, paradise side of the abyss. Uh, again, Luke chapter 16 is the reference. He took them to be with him in heaven. He he took them out of what, paradise, just by the definition. It's a great place. But he took them from there and took them to the final goal of their salvation, where they could be with Jesus in his presence forever and ever and ever. So that's exactly what he did. Now, uh, we have to be careful because a lot of times when people talk about hell, uh, we think, well, well, that's where they are forever. No, they're there only until the very end. After the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, there will be the great white throne judgment, Jill, and the people who um, rejected Jesus Christ, they will be sentenced to the great uh, lake of fire, the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. So I hope that answers your question. He did go down, um, but he... Um, also um, went down there on a very specific purpose. Let me let me make one other distinction. There are some who teach that uh, the passage that you referred to, uh, what does that he ascended mean, except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth. There are some people who refer to that as his incarnation. He was in the heavens and he descended to earth, the lower parts. Um, I'm not sure I buy that, but it's certainly plausible, Jill, and um, that's one of the things that we won't know for sure because we don't have specific information on it. Good question, Jill. Thank you very, very much. Uh, here's a question from Jesse from our mobile app. Um, let me get to another verse. I didn't pull the Bible verse on that up. I will next. Here's one from Frank from our email inbox. I won't forget you, Jesse. I just have to wait till after the break where I can get in my computer and put the Bible verses up. I thought I had it already. Uh, Frank says, Hi, Pastor Ron. I really enjoy your teaching through the Bible. Uh, you have a very, new way, a very unique way of choosing what to teach. Most teachers I have listened to end, or tend rather to do a full chapter or multiple chapters. However, you do a few verses at a time, never really doing a full chapter. Uh, how do you decide where to stop when you form your study? Thank you for going deeper in the Word as you teach. I have learned a lot from you. God bless you. Frank, thank you, and God bless you. You know, Frank, this is a constant struggle for me personally. I so envy uh, those pastors, and I don't mean in an ungodly way, but I mean in a godly way. I envy those pastors who have the gift of brevity. Uh, the the reality, Frank, is I just talk too much. Uh, I see, I open the Bible, and I see application. And for me, it just is impossible to go past the application uh, and just explain the passage. I want the people here at Calvary Chapel to know uh, what the application is of that particular passage so they can use that to change their lives. And so that's one of the reasons why um, I, I talk too much. Um, but uh, either way, we get through the Bible. I think we all have different gifts, and, and I just don't have that gift of brevity. Um, I sometimes do full chapters. I may do a full chapter tonight in Leviticus. I did a full chapter in Leviticus last week. It just depends on on uh, the length of the chapter, 
um, what it is, what I think the depth of the, of the Bible study is going to be, because I, I want to be generous with the time that we have on Sundays. As an example, Frank, um, you know, I've got 40 minutes and, and I've got to get off the stage because we've got three services and people will be backing up to get in. Uh, and so typically I will stop my Bible study at a place where I think I've I've reached the time limit that I have, as long as it it doesn't destroy the context of the study. If there are studies that take longer, uh, I will just make a conscious effort to shorten them up a little bit, uh, because I don't want to uh, teach some chapters that really need to be taught in one setting. I said that recently in Acts chapter seven, I think personally now for me, it is the most difficult chapter in the Bible to teach. It's difficult because it all needs to be taught at the same time. To break it up makes no sense from one week to the next. It's Stephen's speech. It's a this this glorious Holy Spirit-inspired history of Israel. And it needs to be taught in its context, and it needs to be taught in its entirety. And so I really have to be careful on that one. Uh, some chapters, it doesn't matter where they're broken up. You can pick up the next week just as just as easily as not. Uh, and then there are some uh, chapters as I read them, uh, where as you go through the passage, the, the natural breaking point uh, before changing uh, the, the the subject or the, the, the core of the study, uh, it's obvious. And so I'll just go to those chapters. So, uh, Frank, I'm, I'm really trying to honor the time that the people have. Uh, you know, I just think it is rude uh, to keep going on and on and on, keep people outside waiting. So, uh Honestly, that's that's the way we do it here. Um, but that's how I decide where to stop. There are some times, and Friday night is going to be one of those times. I'll give you an example here. Friday night, I'm going to teach one verse in Galatians chapter 6. I already taught it last week, and this Friday I'm going to teach it again. But I'm going to do it completely differently uh, and make it a sort of a topical study on that one verse. Uh, and then next, the next Friday after that, we'll finish the book of Galatians. So uh, it's just, I, I really try to see what the Holy Spirit is leading me to do. And if uh, if I'm successful, then uh, I hope the people get blessed. And I'm grateful that you enjoy uh, our teaching. And we're, we just go through the Bible. I'm going to finish the book of Galatians, start a new book after that. Um, I'm in the book of Acts. I'll start a new book on that's on Sundays. Uh, start a new book then. And Wednesday nights right now is uh, Leviticus. And after that, we'll start a new book as well. So that's just the way we do it here at Calvary Chapel, Frank. I really like that question. I honestly don't know um, how to do it any different. Here is a question from our email inbox from an anonymous female. Um, She says, I have a question to ask after listening to Ecclesiastes uh, study, chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. You stated that the unborn will never get to look into Jesus' eyes or get to ask questions. Are you saying that aborted babies won't go to heaven? Uh, is it that they just won't exist? I have a family this applies to. They become children of God after this was done. Praise the Lord. That's my insert. And we'll be devastated to know. Thank you for being a voice for Jesus. Anonymous female, thank you. That is not what I was saying at all in that. Uh, aborted babies are babies, and they will instantly go into the presence of Jesus, and there will be this glorious reunion between mother uh, and father if 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 they're saved. Uh, and the baby. Now, one of the things that's important and a great way to witness to people that have had abortion is to use this. If you ever want to see your baby again, then the only way to do it is for you to give your heart to Jesus Christ, because I promise you, your baby is in his presence at this very moment. So, yes, um, they will instantly go 
into the presence of the Lord. So uh, you can comfort them with that. Now, here's what I was saying. If you listen to that study in context, uh, I was talking about people uh, who were coming to me and saying, that, and the idea of chapter 4 is under the sun and above the sun. Uh, above the sun, we're looking up to the things of God. Under the sun, we're looking at things from Earth's perspective. And that's a very important distinction to make. So um, the people that are looking from Earth's perspective... Um, the question was, um, uh, and, and I addressed this in the Bible study, uh, the question was, um, um, will will we get to, why would we have a baby and bring a baby into this evil, wicked world? And my, 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 in the study, I explained that, that uh, all those children have a chance to get blessed. All of those children have a chance to get um to get saved, to to have a wonderful, fruitful, abundantly fruitful life, and to deprive um, a child of that experience. Now, it's easy to say, well, a child that's never born wouldn't know what they're missing, but but that's why Jesus said to be fruitful and multiply. He wants people uh, to be created, um, and and uh, you know He wants to reach out to them, and He wants people saved. So what what the 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 comment was about that perspective under the under the sun under the the heavens and we wanted to just let people know that um those babies go instantly into the presence of the lord after they die but the baby that's never born will never have the opportunity to know jesus and the the, the adults who are preventing that baby from being born they will never have the opportunity to see the majesty of god and the miracle of God in a, in a in a in a child that is born into this world. So uh, we don't, because this world is evil, we don't keep babies from being born. Uh, the heavenly perspective is um, let them have the opportunity to know Jesus, because nothing better could happen to them than that. So anonymous female, hope that answers your question. And please, 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 uh, when you talk to that family that uh, has had an abortion. Uh, reassure them that they will have the opportunity to uh, surrender their hearts to Jesus Christ and in that baby. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Ronnie from our mobile app. In light of the past few lottos, is it okay for me as a Christian to play it? I want to help my church and my family. Ronnie, let me say this. Playing the lotto uh, is is really not helping anybody. It's not a good idea. Uh, it's certainly not. And, and I appreciate your heart. Um, you know, I can't tell you how many people I've had, especially when the lottery got up to over a billion dollars recently. Well, Pastor Ron, I played extra lottery tickets. And if I win, I'm going to give the church all the money. And, 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 and that's great. Uh, I appreciate the sentiment. And by the way, we would take the money. But um, the, the, um, the, 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 the odds, the chances of winning the lottery are so extreme that you're really not helping anybody. And there's probably better use for our money than that. Now, I won't tell you, Ronnie, that it is a sin to play the lottery. I know there are some uh, pastors uh, who would tend to be legalistic who say it is a sin to play the lottery. I think it can be foolish. Uh, I think it's it's folly to think that that um, boy I could help the church out I could help my family out um, when the odds are like stacked against you millions and millions and millions to one uh, so uh, I think the best way to do it is to give the Lord what you can give cheerfully and worship Him in that way and don't worry about money that you haven't won in the lottery. So again, is it sin? Not unless the Lord tells you not to do it, then it's sin. Uh, but just to, to, to make a blanket statement that playing the lottery is sin, Ronnie, is something that I can't say because that would go beyond what uh, the Word of God says. So I hope I can discourage you from playing the lotto. But uh, if you play it, um, God bless you. And if you win... Uh, believe me, we'll be here. Uh, I was criticized with I, I made a comment uh, similar to that uh, not too long ago in, in response to a question like this. 
And uh, I made the comment that we'd sure take it. And, and people say, well, how could you take sinful money? Well, that's what God does best. He takes the things of this world and turns them into things that can be used for his glory. And I promise you, there is so much that we could do uh, with with money if we had it. So um, just consider this biblically and prayerfully. And then uh, let let the Lord direct your steps. Ronnie, thanks very, very much. Here is a question from Missy. Pastor Ron, why was incest okay when Adam and Eve's offspring were born? Well, Missy, at the beginning, obviously, there was no alternative. Jesus said, be fruitful and multiply. So when Adam had uh, his sons and and daughters, and, and by the way, the Bible says they had many other sons and daughters, so it wasn't just Cain and Abel. Uh, and then later Seth, they they, were, they probably had over the, the, the 900 years they lived, uh, probably had uh, hundreds and hundreds of of children. Um, and and again, there was there was no other alternative. There was no law against incest that would come later after the fall, much later after the fall. In fact, in the book of Leviticus, it talks a lot about incest and and other unholy sexual relationships. But no, this was not at all incest. And remember, the gene pool was perfect or near perfect after the fall. And so the the complications genetically that we would encounter as a result of incest today uh, simply didn't exist. And there are no other alternatives. And the reality, Missy, is that if we all go back, we're all brothers and sisters um, in Adam and then later uh, even more directly through Noah and his family. So we're all related. Uh, it's just that once you get away from that that immediate family, um, then then the gene pool is not uh, functioning as much. But, but incest, this isn't God saying incest was okay. It's just there were no other alternatives. And, um, and God made this holy. And remember, he's always the one that makes the final decision. So uh, it wasn't incest because there was no such thing as incest. Uh, I know that's hard from our perspective to understand, uh, but the reality is um, uh, it's just God told them to do it. That made it okay. Here's an anonymous question. Uh, I'm a youth pastor running out of ideas for ministering to teens. Do I have any suggestions? Anonymous, I got one suggestion. Teach the Word. Don't minister to teens. Teach them the Bible. In fact, if you're not teaching the Bible to them, you're not ministering to them at all. We have our youth uh, uh, camp coming up next week. Uh, and they're going to get all kinds of Bible. You know, um, the kids will have fun. They'll play some basketball and they'll do some other things. Uh, but uh, their time at youth camp is going to be spent um, in Bible studies. Uh, and you will never run out of ideas. If you go through the Bible, you can start all over and do it again. And that's the way that these kids will grow in the grace and knowledge of God and in the knowledge of his will for their lives. It's just the word, the word, the word. And uh, to try to entertain them or to try to do anything else or try to come up with something more creative than teaching the Bible is absolute nonsense and and it's simply not going to happen. So don't worry about having a cool or hip youth group. Now, my, my youth pastors, I have a junior high school pastor and a high school pastor, and um, they know I'm going to say this every time. I purposely pick two young men. I, I knew they loved God. I knew their hearts. I knew they loved me, and they walked in unity doctrinally with, with uh, what we do here. But I purposely picked two very uncool young men. And I did that because I want to send a message that this is serious business. And so if you want to figure out how to minister to them, um, start in Genesis and teach them the book of Genesis. Uh, when you're done with Genesis, go to the book of Ephesians. When you're done with Ephesians, go to one of the gospel accounts. But teach them systematically, verse by verse through the Bible, and emphasize, and the Lord will give you plenty of opportunities, emphasize to them, um, Anonymous, that that these teachings can change their lives if they will do what they're told to do. 
and you will never run out of ideas. I don't know how pastors, uh, and in your case, youth pastors, I don't know how they do it. I don't know how they wake up every week and try to figure out, how can I be creative again this week? Or what can I do that they haven't heard before? Uh, I, I don't, I just don't get it. And for me, being able to pick up where I left off last week is the single most effective thing that we could possibly imagine. And so just teach them the word. Now let me also suggest this. Don't be cool. Don't cave into the pressure. You know, we've got people that will come from uh, much larger churches, you know, and they've got these really cool hip youth groups and the, they, they go and they play all kinds of games and those kinds of things. And every once in a while, the, they'll, they'll, a parent will come to our church and they'll say, you know, we want to come to this church because you teach the Bible, but, but our kids are bored in your youth group. Well, we just tell them, give them time because the Word of God is living and active. It will meet them where they are. And because it's living and active, they will get engaged, and that happens without fail. And then I also remind the parents that they're the ones that make the decisions about where their youth, where their kids go to church. The kids don't get a vote. You take them where they're going to be fed the word, and it is just brutal in my in my estimation that we take them to these youth groups that are always uh, cool. There's beanbag chairs, and there's air hockey games, and and video games and all these other things, uh, that's not church. Um, the word, the word, the word. And I cannot impress upon you enough how important that is. And you're going to stand before God to give account of your stewardship over those kids that he's allowed to come. Anonymous, I don't know where you are or who you are, but if you'd ever like to come and talk to either of my youth pastors, we'd be happy to talk to you. I think you would be really, really good. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the Wednesday show, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the Word to Stand Up for Life. I'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our Wednesday show, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Here's the question that I didn't get to from Jesse earlier because I didn't have the, the passage up on my screen. Uh, this is um, from our mobile app. Pastor Ron, can you please explain 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17? I love Jesse explaining these two passages. First of all, let me see, we've got to go back. I'm going to go all the way back to verse 13 as I discuss this, Jesse, because it's important that we, um, we truly get this in context because these are passages that post-trib, pre-trib people will argue about it. All they have to do is look at the context. So Paul says in verse 13, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep, in other words, those who died, or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. Now, in Thessalonica, there was somebody who came and tried to stir up trouble. They're waiting for the return of the Lord. They're waiting for what we know is the rapture of the church. They expected Jesus to be back at any moment. Paul was a pre-tribber, and he taught this as, a, as a, an essential part of, of our, 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 our faith as it relates to producing fruit. And after a while, you know, they're expecting daily for Jesus to come back. And as well, people start dying. And and the troublemakers in Thessalonica were were responding by saying, "Look, if they if they died, they just missed out." And and Paul is saying, "No, no, no. We don't grieve like that because we have hope, hope of eternal life." So he's talking about people who die, and then he says in verse fourteen, "We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have." fallen asleep in him. And always when you hear that, it's a euphemism for dying. And what he's saying is that they are already with Jesus. 
They died, and they went instantly into the presence of Jesus. And in fact, it's so certain that we know when he comes back on the second coming, that's separate and distinct from the rapture of the church, that those people will be with him. We know that from Revelation chapter 19. You know, one of the first questions humans have when somebody dies is, well, where are they? And and this verse says clearly that the believers who die are with Jesus. There's no other way he could bring them with him. Paul says in Second Corinthians chapter five, uh, verses six through eight, we're always confident, knowing that while we were at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We're confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So it's very clear the moment we die, we leave the tent of this body, um, then we step directly into the presence of the Lord. Uh, and then he, he talks with, with authority. He says in verse 15, according to the Lord's own word, that's an authoritative, authoritative statement from Jesus himself to the Apostle Paul. That's very important. Paul, uh, the, the, the mystery of the rapture was revealed to the Apostle Paul. And so he's quoting Jesus directly. We know that's 1 Corinthians 15, 51, and 52. And then he says this, We tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now this goes directly back to the problem um, that, you know, well, they died, they just missed the rapture. And, and Paul is simply telling him, no, this is what Jesus told me. They're going to be instantly in his presence. They're going to make it to Jesus before I do. Let's just say, and I I always use me and Paula as an example here. But if I die tonight, I'm going to beat Paula to Jesus. Now, she's going to be mad at me, but I'm going to beat her to Jesus. If the rapture happens, uh, I die tonight and the rapture happens tomorrow, well, then we're going to be reunited in the presence of the Lord, but I'm going to have got there before she did. And that's all that Paul is saying in verse 15, and that sets up the verses that you asked about. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And they're going to rise first because they're already there, so that's already happened. Um, But this is a reference to the rapture of the church. Now, the three basic questions regarding the rapture of the church are what, when, and why does it really matter? So these are really important. Uh, The rapture of the church is taught by the Apostle Paul uh, with authority according to the Lord's own word. He's making absolutely clear that the only real hope of the Christian life is the coming of the Lord for us, and then we'll come with him to establish justice on this world. So that's really, really important. And then he says, after that, after the dead are there, they're already there, uh, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up. It's a Greek word, harpazo. It means to be suddenly caught up or snatched away. Um together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. And this is simply uh, evidence of a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. We'll be in heaven, the Lamb's Supper, uh, for uh, what we know on earth is a time of seven years. Remember, we leave time and space when we go to heaven. But as time is measured on earth, it'll be for seven years. And then we are all coming back with Jesus in uh, chapter Revelation chapter 19. So, Jesse, that's all that is. Um, it, it's all based on the mystery that Paul said in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty one. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all die, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. And then he closes that section with, therefore, encourage each other with these words. And that would be really encouraging to the church in Thessalonica because the people there worried about their loved ones who went to heaven or who died before the rapture of the church happened. And and Paul is basically saying, don't worry about them. God's got all of this covered. So, Jesse, that's what they're talking about there uh, very specifically. Here is a question. This one is from... 
anonymous from our mobile app. I heard Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene. I could not find that in Scripture. Where do I find that information? Anonymous, you can't find that information because it doesn't exist. It's simply not true. Um, it's blasphemy. And um, uh, don't worry about it. it just uh, When somebody says that, they have no authority. They have no biblical basis for coming to that conclusion. Uh, and this is more um, science fiction uh, then it is, uh, I mean, there's just no merit at all. I mean, I don't even know how else to answer other than to say that uh, that simply never was the case. Um, we've been trying to make that uh, connection, new agey stuff, um, um, Dan Brown stuff. Uh, they've been trying to make that connection uh, for a very, very long time. It just doesn't work that way. So I hope anonymous that makes sense. Here's another anonymous question from our email inbox. Uh, Pastor Ron, I do not understand why churches teach the Old Testament. If we're under the New Covenant, then why do we need to read the Old Covenant? Boy, there are so many reasons. One, understanding the Old Testament just just intensifies the majesty of our Bible. Um, when you see that the, the Bible from Genesis 1-1 all the way to Revelation 22-21 is all the same story. It's all about Jesus. From the beginning to the end, it's all about Jesus. And the Old Testament paints pictures for us, helps us to understand. Not only, Anonymous, are the stories wonderful. I mean, the character stories. Let me just give you one example, the book of Judges. Uh, people read the book of Judges, and it says, uh, at a time when people did what seemed right in their own eyes, and it was the darkest time in Israel's history the darkest time in their history because people did what seemed right in their own eyes. Now, I can take that passage and and really preach it to people uh, who live now in, uh, under the New Testament covenant of grace. I can preach that because um, we now live in a world where people are doing what seems right in their own eyes, men saying they're women and women saying they're men and, and uh, introducing children uh, at, 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 in kindergarten. I mean, there are laws in states on the books right now that would require children to be taken from parents who refused to allow them to transition into the sex of their choice with, without parental involvement. Uh, just, you know, we're being cruel if we don't let them do or be what they want to be. And uh, it's just a, it's clearly a time when men are doing what seems right to them and, and our days are getting darker and darker. So here's what I can say to somebody. I can say, you know, uh, in the book of Judges, every now and then God would send these these rescuers. That's what the judges are. They're, they're rescuers. I always refer to them when I'm teaching it as superheroes. And he delivered them from their enemies. And they had victory. And then for a while, they would walk with God. And then they would kids would be born and they would grow up. And then they'd walk away from God. And then the whole process would repeat. Well, Anonymous, we're watching that process repeating even now. So this isn't anything new. God's not been caught off guard. But even a better uh, illustration of this is, I think, um, if you really want to know the character of God, uh, we're, we're currently on Wednesday nights teaching the book of Leviticus. And I got to tell you, it is, it is uh, arduous. Um, it's not exciting um, it's, you know, we read it and say, well, what does it matter that they made these offerings and, and, and had these cleansing processes? Um, but, but you see, the book of Leviticus leads us to the holiness of God. And we get to see his holy nature and his holy character. And I think it's really important that we do that. So think of it this way. I don't know if you're old enough to remember the uh, Connect the Dots coloring books. Um, I, I am obviously and, and, uh, connecting the dots. And when you're done, you get an outline of the picture that's being drawn. Well, that's what the old Testament does. The new Testament fills that outline in and gives us answers. And in fact, the new Testament, in many cases, we get the right interpretation of the old Testament. So it's very, very important. There's another reason it's important, Anonymous, and that's because the Old Testament is filled with prophecy. 
only God, the real God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob ever attempted to tell the future. And and while doing that, it set a standard for him that if there's ever anything wrong, if if those prophecies are not fulfilled precisely as predicted, if there's any variation or if they don't happen, then God himself says, well, then these are lies and 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 uh, then then I'm not God. And and the the Old Testament prophecies prove that God lives outside of time and space. He knows the end from the beginning. It proves that he is sovereignly in control, even when it seems like on the surface the world is spinning out of control. And that is an inspiration to us of two things. First, we know that that the Bible, validated by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the Bible is literally God's word. Uh, Ninety plus percent of all of the prophecies in the Old Testament had been fulfilled exactly as they were given to us. Now, that leaves less than 10 percent that are still unfulfilled. And I think we have every reasonable right to believe that since more than 90 percent of them have been fulfilled exactly, then the remaining unfulfilled prophecies will also be fulfilled at a later time. And they all refer to Jesus's second coming or even the rapture of the church. Uh, and the time that we live in, they too will be fulfilled exactly. So we can have no doubt at all that this really is the word of God. That's why it matters so much. And the other thing is you will see by reading the Old Testament and, and, and finding the character, the nature, the attributes of God, that all of those attributes are perfectly consistent with the arrival of Jesus in his incarnation uh, he is the exact image of his father, the exact representation. In fact, the, 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 the radiance of the glory of the father in heaven is Jesus himself. So anonymous, that's why we teach it. And it's important. And let me just say this. If you're not reading it, you're getting ripped off. You're getting ripped off. Um, I think this would be a question that you ought to sit down and really, really dig in with your pastor and talk about it. Um, why should I read the Old Testament? And if he's one of these seeker-sensitive guys that say, well, it's really not important, it doesn't matter, then you're in the wrong church. Because the Old Testament is so rich, abundantly rich, and it will thrill you. And um, I'm a historical guy. I love the historical books, First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles and First and Second Samuel. Um, I, I love the historical books. And, and and I'm convinced the more I read and study them uh, that things really haven't changed at all in the thousands of years uh, in, since the time that those books were written. So you're getting ripped off. Dig in and enjoy them. One other comment. I know I said that would be my last comment, but this is also equally important. The book of Genesis has got to be taken literally and historically. It's not an allegory. It's not a book filled with spiritual principles that we can make applications. It is real. Adam and Eve were the first two human beings ever born, and they were born perfect. They didn't drag their knuckles. Uh, they weren't Neanderthals. They didn't have to, 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 to jog through Jurassic Park to stay alive. They, they were literal people and the first two people made directly by the hand of God himself. If you don't believe that, Anonymous, then you need to start all over. You need to start all over and decide, do you believe the first four words of the Bible in the beginning God or don't you? But without Genesis, that's the foundation for everything that's written in the other 65 books of the Bible. Without Genesis, none of it makes any sense at all. In particular, the first 11 chapters of Genesis have to be taken literally. So we, you're right, we are into the New Covenant, um, but but we have to read and study, not just read, but study the Old Testament, and it will thrill you. It will absolutely thrill you. Um, you know, when I got saved, I don't have anybody waiting. Um, when, when I got saved... Um, I devoured the Bible. I devoured it. And I, I'd never opened a Bible before I got saved. I got saved when I was almost 40 years of age. And I devoured it. And the Old Testament was just thrilling to me. 
It was thrilling to me. And and you'd read the stories and you'd think, how can these things be true? Samson uh, with the jawbone of, a, of an ass killing a thousand people. How can that be true? Jonah being swallowed by a great fish. How can that be true? And then you start digging in and you find out that the same God of the Old Testament is the one that now has given us this covenant of grace, God's unmerited favor to the infinitely ill-deserving and your appreciation and understanding of who he is and what he's done increases exponentially. So Anonymous, I'm begging you, don't throw out the Old Testament. It matters that much. Thank you for the question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Let's go to Ray on line one. Ray, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Yes, Pastor Ron. I know you're doing well because it's pretty hot out. <laughs> I like um, it for sure. Yeah. Well, you brought this up, and and I just, I'm, I'm puzzled because it goes to Genesis, and you said in the beginning, well, what is the beginning what was the beginning or what was before the beginning can you can you get get that uh, formulated a little better for me yeah i can i, th- I hope ray i think i can um literally in the beginning is before there was a beginning you know the beginning was done at, at god's word he said let there be light and and you and i you know we'd say well that was the beginning but god always was God is self-existent. God didn't need anything else. And and according to, to uh, the Gospel of John, everything that you see was made by God. Jesus was the agent um, who was God, of course, who made all those things. And that was the beginning. Now, that's an example of God speaking to us in terms that we understand. So God who always was, God who didn't need anything or anyone, he completely self-existent, um, it was God's plan to create everything that we see and make it a literal garden for humans to enjoy. And so he made the cosmos. He made the stars. He made uh, what we call outer space. He created uh, the, the, the sky above. He created the land. All of that he created. And he did it um, so that we could inhabit it and live fulfilled lives, walking in the cool of the garden with him. Now, obviously, Ray, God knew that man was going to mess it up. And so there was also always a plan of salvation from before the beginning. Um, we're talk, we talk about the Lamb's Book of Life, and our names are written in that from before the foundations of the world. So from before the beginning that we can perceive. But as it relates to God himself, there was no beginning because he always was, He always is, and he always will be. That's why when Moses said, who shall I say sent me? God said, tell him I am. Not I was or I will be, but I am. Because he always lives in the the eternal present. Um, And God simply made everything. And uh, he did that in six literal days. And uh, on the sixth day, he made... Adam and Eve, and uh, then he couldn't do any better than that, so he rested. Not because he was tired, but he rested. That's the beginning of mankind. And remember the Bible, Ray, is Jesus' story. From Genesis 1-1 all the way through the end of Revelation 22-21. It's all and only about Jesus. So that's the beginning from our perspective. But as it relates to God, he always was, he always has been, and he always will be. And that's what it means in the beginning, God, or we would say if we were looking before we began. God was just as existent and ever-present and powerful uh, before day one of creation as he was uh, during the six days of creation. So all of that to say that uh, God always was and always will be. Thank you, Ray. Good to hear from you again. Got time maybe for one more quick question. Here I can't. This is another rapture question. James says, could the rapture and the second coming be two different events? James, they're absolutely two different events. The rapture is going to happen. Jesus is not going to come to the earth. He's going to come and meet us in the air. We're going to come to him in the air. 
Now, I don't know if that means a halfway point, or, but we're going to meet Jesus in the air. That's the rapture of the church, and then the world, of course, will be plunged, plunged into judgment. That's the Great Tribulation. The second coming is completely different. Uh, the second coming will come, uh, again, you can read about that in Revelation chapter 19. Uh, that's when Jesus comes back to earth. He's actually going to set his feet down on the Mount of Olives, and he's going to destroy his enemies with a word. And and uh, we will be with him at that time. And that's when, uh, after he destroys his enemies, uh, he will uh, rule and reign for a thousand years from the throne of David in Jerusalem. Um, uh, and we will rule and reign with him, whatever that means. We're not given any details, but we will rule and reign with him. But James, they're absolutely two separate events. Jesus came once. He was born as a baby. Um, he's going to come again for his church, but not to earth. We're going to meet him in the air. And then the second time Jesus comes to earth, it will be the time to fulfill all righteousness. Um, thy uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as, as it is in heaven. That's the goal of, of uh, Jesus's prayer. That's when justice and righteousness will be established again on the earth. So James, not only could they be, but they absolutely are two separate events completely. Good questions today. Um, Tonight, I'm going to be teaching out of Leviticus. And I say that because I'm in Leviticus chapter 5, but I've kind of been wrestling with something I think maybe the Lord is leading me to do, uh, moving ahead in Genesis just for a week, and probably do it again later in Genesis, uh, or in Leviticus, rather. Um, But I just, I'm still praying about that, so I don't know. I'm ready with chapter 5, but but we may be doing something else. Uh, And then, of course, tomorrow, Paula will be live in studio with us on her show, the Day Day edition of The Word to Stand On for Life. Hey, thanks for tuning in. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Uh, My name is Ron Arbaugh. I have the privilege of being the pastor of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word with Paula. We'll see you then. God bless. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.